most of us have a significant ability to hear what we want to hear. To hear what we want to hear, what affirms what we believe to be true, what we already want to believe, and remove or we ignore what we don't agree So for me, for me, for instance, when I have a, a physical, so I go to my doctor for a physical, and I come home and my friend, he says, well, what did he say? I say, well, he said, you're in better shape than last time. And in light of that, I've decided I should probably go back in three years or two. If my doctor was there, he would have said something like this. Well, Mr. Cook, it's true I said you're in better shape than last time. It's more reflection on last time than on this time. But I also gave you several recommendations. There's some tests that you should just take now at your page. There's some aspects of your diet that you should change. And I never said nor suggested what you've now made up in your own mind, which is that you should come back in three years instead of Mr. Cook, you should come back next year as is normal for people your age. But I took what he said, adapted it, adjusted it to what I wanted to hear. And we do that in so many areas of life. Often do that with Jesus. People hear the words of Jesus, or they hear what they think Jesus said, and they take some parts that they really like. They reject others out of hand. And together they sort of put together their own view, their own idea of Jesus. But like my doctor, Jesus would tell us. Not what I said. But that's not all that I said. Or what you're saying life should look like is just a creation of your own. That's not at all a life that I came to bring. It's for me at all need to let Jesus speak for himself. And when we do, if we do, we will hear at times from Jesus. Sobering, weighty, eternal warnings. And we'll hear from Jesus glorious, infinite, eternal promises. We'll see both of those in our text this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Matthew, to Matthew 25. So in Matthew 25, begin on verse 31. You can find it on page 831 of the Bibles we provide, page 831. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app just so you can see the passage in front of you as we work our way through it. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers, chapter numbers, we're in chapter 25. The smaller numbers, the verse numbers, we'll start in verse 31. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one as a gift. So at the back of the room, there, there's a stack of Bibles, there's a sign that says free Bibles. So follow the service, please swing by there, grab one of those as our gift to you. So we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in these last days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. He's gathered with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. So we pick up today these are the words of Jesus, Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, 
that he will sit on his glorious throne. For him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another. The shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He places the sheep on his right, the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothed? And when did we see you sick or in prison to visit you? The king will answer that truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We will say to those on his left, depart from you, be cursed into the eternal fire, preparing for the devil his angels. I was hungry, you gave me nothing. I was thirsty, Gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me, naked, you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? Thirsty, a stranger, naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. And they will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away to eternal punishment, to righteous, to eternal life. This morning in our passage, we'll see this emphasis. Be ready by trusting in the king and loving his people. Be ready by trusting in the king and loving his people. And we'll look at our passage in three parts. So first we'll see the return. Second, the welcome. Third, departure. So first, the return in verses 31 to 33. And here, Jesus concludes this block of teaching that began back in chapter 24. As always, we want to think about a passage in its context so we understand its meaning. So this unit started all the way back in 24, verse 3. If you want to look over there, you'll see it again. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? We've said in recent weeks that this teaching, Matthew 24 and 25, are Jesus' instructions for his disciples. These are private instructions for those who profess to be his disciples. They're saved that they're following him. They're trusting him. And he's been answering this question, starting all the way back in 24-3, when will he return? For Jesus had been predicting that he was going to die and be raised. And just days after this, that would happen. And after his resurrection, shortly after that, he would ascend to the Father. And one day, he would return. This has been preparation for them. And he told them that during this time, in between his ascension and his return, in chapter 24, that there would be great difficulties in the world. Wars, earthquakes, famines, 
opposition to God's people, persecution, false teachers who try to lead people astray. And all the while, though, the good news, the gospel, would go forward, would spread to the nation. We saw that Jesus then went on to talk about how his disciples are to be ready for his return. He promised he would return, and so they're to watch for his return, to know that he's near. In fact, he's very near. He can come at any time. But also, as they watch, they must watch, as we saw last week, persevering. Because he could come very soon. It also could be beyond our lifetime. So we must persevere in watching it. And while we watch, we have to be faithful, working, leveraging our time and all that we have for God's glory and for the good of others. And then finally today, he concludes by speaking of some of what is going to happen when he returns. So we pick it up, verse 31. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then will sit on his glorious throne. So it means a title that we've seen used for Jesus, that Jesus has used for himself. It draws back from Daniel chapter 7, of this, this powerful, glorious one, the one who would be king. Jesus is saying, that is him. Now during this time as Jesus walked the earth, he walked in humility, lived in simplicity. But here he's saying, when he returns, then the Son of Man will come in glory. He'd been walking in simplicity and humility, but on that day, then his glory will finally be seen, and then he will reign as king. You see, verse 34 is also indicated by Jesus being seated on the throne. And Jesus tells us that as he sits on the throne, all the people, so all the nations, the gathered before him. And Jesus uses a, a common illustration from that day. It's common for a shepherd in that day to have both sheep and goats in his herd or flock. I'm not sure what term you use when it's those combinations, but for whatever it is in their flock, I guess, he has them all together. But at the end of the day, they would normally separate them because the difference in those animals, they would separate them at night. Jesus says, in a similar way, when he returns, all people would gather. Him. We'll separate all the people into two groups. Sheep on his right hand, goats on his left. Is this separation tremendously important and relevant for every one of us today and for all people of all times? So what happens in this separation? That leads us second to the invitation. Invitation, verse 34, look down. Jesus says that he, the king, will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So the king extends this extravagant invitation. Come, come in, you who have been blessed by the God of all creation. The culmination of all these blessings is this inheritance, the very kingdom of God. Now, a co-heir with Jesus Christ. All of this prepared before the foundation of the world. Because we see here that this is all a part of God's eternal plan. Planned, prepared, before the foundation of the world. This inheritance that those who trust in Jesus are brought into is a, a gift freely received. And Jesus goes on to describe... 
some of what they've done. Look at verse 35. It says, I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. I'm going to pay close attention to verse 37. It says, then the righteous will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? And it's so on through the list. But you see that those who are welcomed in, near to the kingdom, are, are here called the righteous. Oh, we should notice that they're surprised, but they're not surprised that they're welcomed in. They don't say, we did not know we would be brought into the kingdom. They're not surprised by that. They were surprised that these actions were so significant. Their response wasn't, well, we worked hard at those things, and so, so we're glad there was enough to make our way into the kingdom. <coughs> they're basically saying, yes, we've done those things for people all around us. But you're saying, we did it for you, so when was it? How was it when we were doing this for you, Jesus? Because we never saw you. Answers verse 40. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. In order to handle this text wisely and well, we have to think kind of hard. It's, it's a summer morning, it's a holiday weekend, but we'll have to think because there's some questions that come to mind as we see this text. And so, one I think that comes to mind is this is Jesus saying that we earn salvation through these actions? Don't be taught in this passage that, that by doing these things, they earned enough merit by which they are saved. And you can certainly see by someone, if you only read this portion of chapter 25, you might think that. We also read the passage in its context. So in this, the context of the entire Gospel of Matthew. If you've been with us throughout this series, if you're going to sit down this week and read the Gospel of Matthew, it becomes clear from the very beginning that all people, every person, needs a Savior. So at the very beginning, the very name of Jesus, we're told in Matthew 121, you will call him Jesus because he will save them from their sins. So the outset of the book, it's not a path of self-salvation by doing enough to earn it, but in fact there must be one who would come, and he had now come to save from sin. And again and again, he's helps to see across this gospel that none of us, no one, can be righteous on our own. And then in the coming chapters, we'll see in just the weeks ahead, the necessity and the reality of Jesus' suffering and his death, his resurrection, those would not be necessary. Those would not be essential. Jesus would not need to die if we could somehow save ourselves through our own efforts. So through Jesus' cross, he takes our unrighteousness. He takes our sin. We are made righteous by him. For Jesus, the very Son of God, came to do perfectly all that is valued in this passage. He came to perfectly satisfy the deepest hunger thirst of our souls. He came to heal and transform not just bodily, but the deepest level of who we are. He came to free us from the prison of sin and rebellion. He came to welcome us in, not to treat us as strangers, 
No longer enemies of God. In fact, adopted into God's own family, brought into this eternal inheritance. Jesus came to bear the curse of God in our place. That's all of this. It's a gift of grace. We think it would be on the context of the Gospel of Matthew, the New Testament. This is the, the threat again and again. Salvation is not earned. It must not be earned. It could not be earned. It is all of grace. Apostle Paul so helpfully says it this way in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But after reading that, we might say, but what is Jesus saying here, though, about their deeds? Because he's speaking of the value of the works that they did. Well, the very next verse in Ephesians 2, verse 10, helps us. As Paul goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the witness of the scriptures again and again, that we're saved by the grace of God alone. But those who are truly saved are also those who engage in much good work that flows from the salvation. Not for salvation, but from it. Not earning salvation, but it's evidence that we truly are saved. Now, Brother Jesus, James is this way, James 2, 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. One who says him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Saving faith in Christ will bear fruit. Also John, 1 John 3, 16 to 18, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, it closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So you see the, the beautiful reality of how these things together. That we're saved by the grace of God alone. And if we're saved by the grace of God alone, it will result in a life shaped by, marked by, filled with deeds that are done. Love and service for those around us. For Jesus came to save sinners, and in that he transforms us into the righteous, as we're called in this text, into children of God. And those who have looked to Christ by faith are those who seek to follow Jesus now in this life. And as we follow him, we do it imperfectly. But by the grace of God, we try to do so with our whole hearts, with all of who we are. And we are being increasingly made to be more and more like Christ. And if this salvation has taken hold in our lives, there will be fruit. There will be evidence of this saving, transforming work. That's what Jesus is going to hear. But another question that comes to mind is, who is Jesus referring to in verse 40 when he says, as you do it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see here that Jesus doesn't only say the least of these, but he's using the phrase, the least of these, my brothers, could equally well be translated to equally well, the, the least of these, my brothers and sisters. I've seen Jesus use this term numerous times, brothers, brothers and sisters, throughout the Gospel of Matthew. 
And it becomes clear that brothers or brothers and sisters in the book of Matthew refers not only to biological relationships, but it does refer to a certain group of people. Here's what Jesus had said earlier in Matthew chapter 12, verse 26. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man and told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So here Jesus does not downplay the importance of family. But he has said those who are his brothers and sisters are, are truly those who trust in him. So friends, therefore, who are our brothers and sisters if we are Christians? It is other believers. So Jesus said, if you did the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. He says, one, you're doing it to those who trust in Christ, fellow believers. And Jesus says, he so closely identifies with those who trust in him, that, that he says, when you do it to them, you've done it to me. It's the way that Jesus sees it. As you cared for this brother or sister in the faith, you've done it for Jesus. We see a similar sense in Acts chapter 9 of how Jesus identifies with his people. Acts chapter 9, the one we call the Apostle Paul, when he was called Saul at the time, he was a great persecutor of the church. And he has this experience with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Jesus says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the fact is, Jesus was ascended. He was not present. Saul was persecuting the church, God's people. But here Jesus says, when you're persecuting them, you're persecuting me. That's how closely Jesus identifies with his people. Jesus teaches us that the least of these brothers and sisters... Here is referring to Christians, believers in Jesus Christ. As we engage in these acts of love, service, kindness, Jesus sees it as us doing it for him. We don't necessarily say what I'm saying or what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that Christians are to only care for believers. That's not what he's saying. We are called to, to love our neighbor, and that's all we encounter. We're to even love enemy and to love brother and sister. So Christians are to love and care for the poor inside of the church and outside of the church. But the specific point that Jesus is making in this text is speaking to how we relate to brothers and sisters, those who are in the family of God. Galatians chapter 6 verse 10 helps us here, paints this broader picture. Paul says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So who is the Christian to care for, to love, to do good? Everyone. Especially, there's a uniqueness of the relationship to God's In chapter 24 of Matthew, Jesus had told us that this entire period between his ascension and his return would be marked by great difficulty, suffering, persecution, opposition. And so in those earliest days of the church, many people would be rejected by their families. And God's people had a chance to do what Jesus describes here. To welcome them in. There would be many who would be physically harmed. Because they followed Jesus, they're thrown in prison. And God's people had a chance to, to visit them in prison, to care for them while they were suffering. But across the generations, this has continued. 
and in many places around the world today. It's a very real experience for many of our brothers and sisters around the world today. That they worship Jesus today at risk of their own lives. At the very least, the risk of their jobs, relationships in their families. So there's a chance always, then and now, for God's people to seek to serve and sacrifice and do good for brothers and sisters. Jesus is saying that for a person who's been truly saved, that they will engage in activities like this. And often it seems without giving it much thought, because it becomes increasingly who they are. Yeah, I guess we're everything, but this is what I should do. But over the years, as Christ grows us more and more, this should become the impulse what we do because of what Christ has done in us. So, friends, we have the chance to live generously and sacrificially, flowing from our truest identity, which is a child of God, a co heir with Jesus Christ. So therefore, we have a chance to seek to meet material needs here and now. It's happened sometimes in our church, when, when some of the church hear about a brother or sister who's, who's struggling, and maybe people in the community who grapple together to help pay rent, to help pay for medical care, caring for believers who are missing a season of significant suffering or difficulty. It's just here to, to welcome brothers and sisters from around the world. So some who come here to study. Some who move to our cities because it's unsafe where they are. So we have to welcome those brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to support workers in dangerous places now around the world. So if you're a Christian, how do you think about and seek to serve Christians in your life? Do you engage in these sorts of activities? And in our connected world, it's very possible to become aware of brothers and sisters in other parts of the world and offer support to them. And that is good and right and God. What an amazing thing in this world we live in that we can pray for, financially support, and do other to work for the good in so many places around the But even as we do that, most often the opportunities will come in closer proximity. The reality is in order to do this in an ongoing way for brothers and sisters, I'll need brothers and sisters that I can see touch and be in the same room. There's a live out, it's being described here. I don't need a local church for this to be possible. So then how are we to live in the light of this? Friends, we, we remember who we are in Christ. God has blessed you, brought you into his kingdom. We're to follow Jesus' example and his word and, and we'll trust the empowering of the Spirit in us. Believing that, that he's at work changing us. And by that, our lives either verify Yes, this person truly has been saved by the lives that we're living, or it calls into question. Our sacrifice and our love for brothers and sisters. Our impulses are changed. And we do these things, initially without even giving them much thought. So Jesus invites those who trust in him, he invites them home. So we see the invitation, but we also must see third, the departure. The departure verses 41 to See, Jesus has a very different word in verse 41 to verse 41. And he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. There's no question this is a heavy, jarring, sobering 
those who are not righteous, cursed and instead into the fire. Those who are told to depart are apparently not surprised by the burden they don't see. We thought we'd be well, but they But they too, like the first group, are surprised. They're surprised when Jesus says they didn't feed him, they didn't meet his need, they gave him no drink. So they asked, like the first, when? When did we see hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister? So Jesus answers. Verse 48. Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do to me. So, like the first, actions here give evidence of a person's heart, a person's identity. And in this case, in particular, it's their lack of action. They had no care or no concern for Jesus. And they're being separated not only because of what they've failed to do here, but it's evidence of their heart, of their heart is far from God. And right, apart from the grace of Jesus, we all will naturally do this. No one naturally loves Jesus, nor his people. This is the normal course for every single person, me and you and to not love Jesus, to not worship Jesus, to want to go our own way, and to despise Jesus and his people. Because fundamentally, what is most important is who we are. And that's shaped by who we trust in, who we're looking to by faith. What we do matters, that's in here, but what we matter, what we do flows from or demonstrates who we really are. Jesus shows there are these two ways, these two paths, these two destinies. One for those who looked to him by faith. One for those who refused to look to him by faith. For those who reject him. For those who say they don't need him. They go their own way. And in this judgment to come, the separation of those who reject Christ and his people, those who reject him will face this punishment we call hell. It includes separation from God. Every source of life, and grace, and joy, and so much more. And because he is not there, none of those things. Scriptures use a variety of images to try to describe what it would be like. Here it's called eternal fire. Also are things like a place of darkness. It's referred to as eternal punishment. This is a tremendously great warning. We must see that this is a warning from Jesus. These are his words. Not created by by some preacher. It's much of Jesus himself. In fact, if we read Jesus' words in the gospel, we'll see that Jesus often speaks eternal punishment. He doesn't speak of belief. And its purpose is to warn people, to urge them to run from it, to flee from it, and to know there is a way of deliverance. The 
Bible says, Jesus says, we each deserve punishment. Justice for our rebellion. No one deserves grace. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. None of us do. But many reject the very idea of the judgment of God just out of hand. I refuse to believe in a God who judges it. I think that's where you are today. That's a, a larger conversation. But I, I would ask you to consider, is it possible you've done what I said I did with my doctor? I just chose to reject certain things. How do you see that Jesus himself saying this is so? This is not just one occurrence, but in any places Jesus speaks about this. And there's much more on this topic. I have a helpful book on our book table. Called Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin, who's a part of our church. And one of the chapters is this How can a loving God send people to heaven? It's an essential question. It's great if that book would be helpful to you. You can take it. If you don't have the money, just take it. If you read one, take the book. I would love that you do that. Jesus summarizes the verse 46. These will go away to eternal punishment, to righteous, to eternal life. According to Jesus, there are these two ways, but only these two ways. Those who trust in Christ receive his grace. Those who refuse Jesus continue their lives of rebellion, face this eternal punishment. Friends, we must see Jesus wants us to be informed. But not only to be informed, he wants to urge us to flee the wrath to come, to come to him for salvation. Friend, if you're not a Christian today, we're so glad you have a part of a beautiful summer day to you. I recognize this is a hard, it's an offensive teaching. I think it's ridiculous. I hope you consider thinking that Jesus is speaking truth. It could be that inside we, we all are far from God by our very nature. We need a Savior from outside of all of us. Could it be there is a future judgment. The only hope in the face of that is through trust in Jesus. So for me, I'd like to tell you more if you're interested. If you've been exploring it, I want to urge you today. Come to Christ today. Turn to Christ by faith today. Receive this free gift. Go from one bound for eternal punishment, which we all are by nature, to one now brought into the very family of God. For you see, the one who tells us of the separation of Jesus, the one who will do the separating, came provided by so we wouldn't have to be separated. That's why Jesus came. And we can experience his invitation instead of being separated into punishment. Jesus, the shepherd, came to be struck down from the sheep, to lay down his own life for the sheep. And so when you see these coming weeks, the extraordinary things that Jesus went to to provide the salvation for any and all if you're a Christian, you may think about this and you may wonder, but why hasn't Jesus saved this person in my life? I guess every one of us have friends or family members who we love, we desire for them to know Christ, and they don't get it. So we wonder, why not? 
That's a significant question to wrestle with. But even more fundamental question for Christians why has he saved me? I don't know why he hasn't. What an amazing Savior. He can save us. Knowing ourselves, knowing the depth of our own sin, he can rescue me. Rescue you from how would he save any of us at the greatest cost? That's what Jesus came to do. As we've seen, there is a delay between Jesus' ascension and his return. And one of the primary reasons for that, as we've seen, is that people like us would go and tell other people this good news. So he now sends us up, he sends us out, he scatters us to go and tell. For the day is coming, as we see, when Jesus will say, depart. But until that day, Jesus says only one thing, come. That's the invitation today from Jesus. Come. Any who will, come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come and find salvation. And who can be welcomed from any and all who admit they need to see? So therefore, we can pray and go and tell with confidence and hope, extend this invitation to everyone. So if you haven't come to Jesus, won't you come today? That's the invitation. So Christian, will we feel the weight of this? For the sake of others, will we pray? Go. Go with urgency. those who are Christians, we need to see what Jesus will say to you. will say to all who trust in him on the last day. Friends, this is what you'll hear. Come. You who are blessed by my Father, come into the inheritance prepared for you before the foundation of the world. This will be the invitation for you on the last day for us. Tied with the commendation we saw last week, well done. Good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of of your master and what a glorious home. It's written because of this promised future inheritance, we can give ourselves and our resources away here and now because of the future. So we can do this sacrificial care mentioned earlier to meet the needs of others, to, to care for those who are suffering, to visit those in prison, to love brothers and sisters at great cost to ourselves and to endure in doing so because we don't have to accumulate because there is an inheritance awaiting us. I don't have to store up now, but that incalculable inheritance is ours. So we go, we serve, we fight, So we wait now for Jesus to return. We persevere until he returns. So be ready. Live in a way that you're ready by trusting in Christ today. That on that last day you might experience this incredible invitation that you share. This glorious invitation. For if you not consider Christ, do so. Those of us that have, that we go and serve, love, sacrifice, others may know, hear, and care.